Well, hello, hello. Are you guys excited to be here tonight? Come on. Welcome to Asking for a Friend. We're so glad you guys are here. Um, I wanted to say thank you for all, anybody who volunteered tonight, thank you so much for volunteering and serving. You guys are awesome. I wanted to say thank you guys for your questions. Some of you submitted some amazing questions. Thank you for submitting those. Um, if you brought tampons or pads with you tonight for We Love You, period, which is our His Gives Back tonight, we're giving them to Hope is Alive. Yes, she got the joke. It's pretty funny. Um, I wanted to give you a little bit of a tampon tally. This is how many we've raised tonight. Okay, are you ready for this? It's a big number. We've raised, if this will turn on. Okay, oh, I just took a picture. Uh, 476 tampons and 518 pads. That's pretty good. So good job, you guys. Thank you for that. And without further ado, I'd like to invite up to the stage Pastor Sarah Blunt and Pastor Trudy Blunt. Can you guys give it up for them? Awesome. Uh, I know the stage is a little bit of a weird height. All right. I'm going to position this a little bit. Yeah. Go for it. Rearrange. Readjust. I want to be able to see you. Okay. All right. Hey. Welcome, everybody. Hey. Yeah. Had a little thigh burn there. Been doing some exercises. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Thank you guys for coming tonight and braving the kind of like, is it going to rain? Is it going to thunderstorm? Is it nice? Beautiful. Thank you for coming. Thank you for partying with us. And like Haley said, thank you for submitting the questions. We had almost 50 questions come in. And uh, I I just want to let you know that we couldn't get to all of them, obviously. We'd be here for days. Um, Some of the questions that we answered tonight, they may not apply directly to you in the season that you're in right now. But here's the thing. I want you to promise me that you're going to lean in all night long, that you're going to take notes all night long. We didn't put any notes in the app because this is too big for the app. Like you got to get that, you got to get that pen and paper out uh, and be ready to write because even if these don't apply to you right now, they may apply to you in 10 years from now. They may apply to you next month. They may apply to your teenager who's not here and they come and ask you this question and now you have a godly response to give to them. So, so lean in with me all night long. I believe, although they may not apply to you every question, I believe that there is something for you to grab hold of in every answer tonight if you'll just be expectant. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get started. Amen. God, we thank you for what you've already done tonight. It is overwhelming that tonight the Mm. spirit of the living God was here, is here, meeting us right where we're at, ministering to us exactly what we need. Thank you for your spirit, Lord. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Mm -hmm. I thank you that freedom is just here tonight, resting on these women, waiting for them to step into it. We, we press into that freedom that's here for us tonight. God, we thank you for truth. We thank Mm. you for grace. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for answers tonight. We love you and we praise you in Jesus name. Everybody said, amen. 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 Well, we have a lot of ground to cover tonight, so we're just going to jump Right in, and, and seriously, jump right in. Jump right in. We're just going, <laughs> for, We're going, going for, it. for it. This is the first question. Um, it says this. If I had an affair eight years ago on my spouse, do I need to tell him? I don't want to because we're both madly in love now, and we're pursuing God like never before. Okay, so we are. We're just jumping right in. Okay, 
I know that when things are going really good in marriage, and yay that they are, I'm glad that you're pursuing God like never before. I know at mm-hmm. this point, the last thing that you want to do is bring up something from your past that's going to cause you to relive some shame, and that's also going to cause you to potentially hurt your spouse. Like, that news is going to hurt your spouse. No matter who they are, that's a, that's a, that's a hard thing to swallow. But here's the thing. Uh, if you... If they were to find out about this from someone other than you, like maybe the secret came out and maybe you're thinking, there's no way, there's no way. Like I know my secret is safe, but the funny thing about secrets is they do have a way of being revealed. And so if your spouse was to find this out from someone besides you, it's going to be a lot more devastating. It's going to be a lot, uh, it's going to feel like the betrayal is a million times worse. The the trust is going to be more severely severed. At that point, they're going to be wondering what else has happened during this time that, that, you don't, that they don't know about that you just haven't been caught doing. So uh, you need to come and tell them. But it's not just uh, in case you get caught. That's actually not even the most important reason. The most important that you need to tell your spouse about this is because a healthy marriage is one that's built on total honesty, total openness, right? Total honesty, total openness. Look at this. Biblical marriage is intended to embody self-sacrificial trust. Like you giving this information to your spouse, that's, you're putting yourself out there. This is Uh, Mm self-sacrificing. But a biblical marriage is intended to embody that and unity because it's all about oneness. God's design for marriage is oneness. And hear me, oneness is impossible if you've got hidden things from your spouse, things that you're keeping um, secret from him. Now, this doesn't just apply to affairs, okay? There should be no secrets in your marriage, no secret purchases, uh, maybe unless it's their birthday or something like that. But... But there should be no secret purchases. There shouldn't be texts that you're hiding, right. uh, things on Facebook that you're hiding, phone yeah. calls, emails. Right. Your life is an open book when it comes to your spouse. Um, there was a time in my life that I was having uh, romantic dreams about a male friend that was not my husband. And the first dream happened, and I was like, what the heck? Like, that's out of left field. Where did that come from? And it was just kind of like, must have just been the pizza that I ate that night. Like, didn't think anything about it. Well, then I had another one, like a week later. And then I kept having them. And I was really starting to, like, get freaked out. Why am I having these dreams? I was praying about it. Like, Lord, what do I do? This is so weird. Where are these coming from? And I heard the Holy Spirit say, like, so clear, you need to tell Josh about this. And I was like, oh, no, not that. Like, no, anything but that. Like, and, and here's the thing. I could have kept it a secret. Nobody knows except for me. Like, this is literally something that mm-hmm. he would never find out. But I knew the Holy Spirit said, you need to tell him. I didn't understand why at the moment, but I did. I sat down with him and said, hey, this is happening. And, of course, he was like, who was it? Who is it? And I told him because total openness and honesty. And uh, a couple things happened that night when I, when I revealed this secret to him. Uh, one, the dream stopped. They just stopped. Praise and God. I was like, praise Make God. Peace. That was weird. I don't want to mess with that anymore. So the dream stopped. The second thing is um, it, it just laid another level of mm-hmm. foundation of truth and Trust. honesty in our marriage. And then thirdly, like he knew at this moment that there's nothing 
that I'm ever going to hide from him. And then he sees that if I'm going to come to him with stuff like this, he knows that he can come to me with stuff like this. So it just created, it really did. It made us even closer. It made us feel more like one. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And I can't think of a better place to do this than within the marriage, uh, the marriage relationship, okay? But before you go in to share something that may potentially hurt your spouse, I got a couple of tips, okay? Go and pray up. Like pray, <laughs> ask the Holy Spirit to guide you so that uh, you say the right words, that, that you res- respond, because you may want to put up some walls when they get defensive. Go and pray up. Secondly, be prepared to give them space and time. Okay, you've kind of processed this and you've moved past it a little bit, but they're just hearing this information and they're mm-hmm. going to need space and time to process, right. to get mad, to, to grieve, to heal, to think, to pray. So be prepared to give them lots of space and lots of time. Thirdly, tell the whole truth. No half truths. Like it, if we're going for total openness and total honesty, then tell the whole truth. Uh, again, if they come back and they find out that you weren't telling the whole truth, that just betrays their trust. So you mm-hmm. got to be open and honest. So and then number four, go overboard to flee all appearance of evil so that you can regain their trust. So if it was purchases, secret purchases, and you're like, hey, I've been spending money on this and I'm just being honest and open with you next month. I don't want to have cash. I want the check card and I want, here's the bank statement. I want you to see like where our money is going and how I'm spending the money. If it was like a, an affair or a relationship, um, that friend cannot be friends with you on Facebook anymore. They can't be friends with you on Instagram anymore. You need to delete them from your phone. Do everything right. in your power to flee the appearance of evil and put your spouse at ease knowing that he can trust you moving forward. So I know it's hard, but the other thing I know is that this still bothers you that eight years later, you're still thinking about this so much so that it was the question you thought of to submit. Mm -hmm. There's some freedom that God wants you to walk into. He wants to clear your conscience. He wants you to get this out there. Tell your spouse, uh, you, you'll be forgiven, um, repentant, all that stuff. But, but it says confess so that you may be healed. There's some healing for you in this as well. I want to backtrack a second on what you said about secret purchases. So you yes. said no spe- secret purchases. This kind of goes along with our next question. Okay. okay, here it is. Should I have a shared bank account with my husband? Ooh, good question. Okay, so some things in marriage are great his and hers, right? His and hers towels, great. His and hers sinks. Great. His and her bank accounts and checking accounts, not so great. Uh, A viable marriage can only survive or cannot survive a his and her relationship for very long because here's why. It's totally contrary to God's plan for marriage. Mm -hmm. Again, God's plan for marriage is oneness. Think about how closely our heart is related to our money, right? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So your heart and your money are tied together. And if you and your husband's accounts are separated, there's part of your heart that he doesn't have complete access to or that you don't have complete access to his. This is not a picture of oneness that God intended for marriage. The other thing is, if you're not willing to join your finances, I think it should be a red flag, like... This should be a warning signal of, of, of this. There's some unresolved trust issues that are lingering, mm-hmm. that, are, uh, that are at bay. 
if, if, if you're not sharing accounts, it's because you don't trust each other. So instead of mm. kind of trying to cover up those issues and temporarily bandage those issues with his and her checking accounts, you need to get to the root of the issue, which is why can't I trust you with my finances and why can't you trust me with yours? So if there's trust issues there, get those figured out and then, yeah, try to get his and her checking account so you can experience the oneness, or no, try to get one checking account <laughs> so that you can experience the oneness that God has for your marriage. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so these first questions are, they're all really around marriage. Here's the next one. It says, how should I pray for my spouse who is a non-believer and has no faith. Is there ever a point where I should walk away from the marriage if he's hindering my spiritual growth? And this answer can be applied to any loved one, really. Sure. Yeah. Well, let me answer this one because this was a part of my life. Um, when I was 17 and, Ken, and Pastor Ken was 19, we got married. Wow is right. <laughs> you know... At that age, they say you don't even have all your brain yet. So here we are, two people married with no brains. Uh, we had been, we had liked each other since I was 12 years old. So he was the love of my life. But I got, at least that little short period of my life anyway. But we got married and quickly after we got married, we just couldn't get along. We were young. We didn't have Jesus in our lives. And uh, I, I cried out to God one night, and he came in and just amazingly saved me and filled me with the Holy Spirit. And so then uh, I wanted him to be a part of this, but he was at a different place. He wasn't interested in it at the time, and I didn't understand that because uh, I thought, our lives have been you know, kind of a mess here, so don't you want what I've got? You know? and, and I, but I didn't know what he needed. And so I began to pray for him. And I want to give you a couple of scriptures up front first about what, I, what, what you can pray over a spouse that's a non-believer. And then I'll go to the third one. But first of all, you need to pray for scales to fall off their eyes and blinders to be removed. According to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, it says that Satan blinds the mind of those who don't believe the gospel. Yeah. See, there's blinders there. And then uh, pray for strongholds to be knocked down in their, in their lives. Second uh, Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 talks about strongholds. And, and you might say, well, what is a stronghold? Well, it's something that's got a stronghold on you in your mind. Yeah. It's usually a grid or a filter that you think everything through. And some of it comes because of maybe the way you were raised or things that happened to you. But everything you do, you process through a certain filter and a certain grid. And so I don't, I don't really know what's going on with him, but when I got filled with the Spirit, one of the only things I knew, and you've got to understand where I came from, I didn't know anything. Uh, I got saved and filled with the Spirit in my little apartment after we got married. And the only scripture they gave me was Romans 8, uh, 8 28 and 26 through 26, uh, 26 through 28. And I want to read that to you right quick because this is the third point one of the greatest things you can do for your spouse is pray in the spirit. Yeah. And I just love this scripture. It says, and in the same way, by our faith, the Holy Spirit helps us with our daily problems. And in King James, I, say, I think it says weaknesses. Yeah. But it means the inability to get results. Right. It goes beyond what you know. For we don't know how to pray for uh, as we ought 
or how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with such feeling that it cannot be expressed in articulate words. Powerful. And the Father who knows the hearts knows, of course, what the Spirit is saying as he pleads for us in harmony in God's own will. And in one translation, I love this, where it says you're praying out the will of God. It says you are actually praying the prayers of God. Wow. You are praying exactly what he would pray so good. through you. Because yeah. he knows everything yes. about what they need and where yes. they're at. And uh, we know that when you do this, see this, this scripture is taken out of context sometimes too. But it's talking about praying in the spirit too. And we know that all things happen to us and are working for our good if we love God and are fitting into his plans. Good. See, it's all tied together. Yeah. So one of the things I began to do, because that's all I knew. That's about the only scripture I knew at that time. And he was on the road to alcoholism. We were young marrieds. The Vietnam War was going on. He couldn't sleep at night. It was a dark time in our country. And a lot of young men were being drafted to go to Vietnam, and a lot of men were dying in Vietnam. If you know anything, most of you are too young to understand but back then they had the draft, and if your number got called, you went whether you, got, you enlisted or not. You had to go. So he's got that on his head. He's got a young bride on his head, so he can't sleep at night, so he begins to drink. Alcoholism was in his family. His father was an alcoholic. And so I didn't know what to do. I did know this. The Holy Spirit said, do not make him jealous of me. You love him like you've never loved him before. So I would talk to him and love on him and he'd come in and I'd have my Bible and he'd say, why are you reading your Bible? And I'd say, I'd I'd close my Bible and I'd say, what do you want to talk about? I gave him no chance to make it look like God had separated me from him. Wow. And then this was the key thing. Many nights he would drink himself to sleep. And I would reach over in the night, lay my hands on his back. And I would pray in the spirit until I fell asleep. I had no idea what it was doing. I just did it because the Bible said to do it and I believed it would work. And as I began to pray with him, two things began to happen. First, the first thing that began to happen, which he wasn't telling me about, was everywhere that he went, God was chasing him. (laughs) And here was the thing I did not know. The reason, and this is where strongholds come in, the reason that he didn't want Jesus was because he had gotten saved when he was a a young boy at Baptist church camp, but he hadn't lived for God. He was only a convert. He hadn't become a disciple. Wow. And so he had failed and failed and hadn't walked with God. And when it when God came in my life, he thought, well, she's great. She's perfect. God loves her, but he didn't love me anymore. See, people have things in their mind. That's why their expectation gets off. That's why when you've prayed for people over and over and over and over, Uh, you just keep expecting them to fail. (laughs) You really do. You're not using your faith in that situation. Your expectator, I don't know if that's a good word. That's a good word. Has to be turned back on. But this is what began to happen. When I began to pray for him in the spirit, God's chasing him everywhere he went. Everywhere. He was working in a grocery store. He said the blank, God's love would fall on him like a blanket. And he said, I'd stand there and start to weep and I didn't know why. He said, I just knew I was loved by God. And he said, it was really weird because, you know, there's people around him going, what is wrong with him? You know? 
And one time he was driving to the liquor store. Driving to the liquor store and the presence of God filled his car. And God kept saying, I love you. I want to help you. Ask me to help you. And he didn't. He didn't at that point. But I kept praying for him. This is what, see, this is what's so cool in marriage. God's doing something in him, but he also did something in me. He began to show me a vision of what he saw in him. He began to show me this isn't who he is. This is who he is. This is his potential. And and did you know the word omnipotent just means God of potential? Wow. That's all it means. Wow. He's the God of potential. And so he began to show me. I'll never forget the first time it happened. I, be, I was praying for him, and I, I saw him preaching. And you got to know, I'm thinking, I don't know about this. And, you know, that never entered our minds to be in the ministry. But the more I prayed, the bigger the crowd got. And the crowd got bigger. And then it got bigger. And in that moment, I thought, I know where this dude's supposed to go. Wow. And part of my purpose in the kingdom is to make sure that he gets there. And I determined in my heart I would help him any way I could love him. And only a week or two later, he, he accepted Jesus because one of my brother-in-laws came in and began to preach to him. And he said, you know what? God loves you. And in that moment, he came back to God and got filled with the Spirit. Now, I want you to think about this right here. What if I'd have given up? What if I said, it's too hard? This, you know, I can start all over. Hmm. I can just toss him. I'm 17. I can go get somebody else. Yeah. What would have happened? Think about this. Think about the destiny of obeying God and sacrificing at moments sometimes when you don't want to for your marriage. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of little kids that he ministered to would not be safe today. Yeah. This room's full of them. <laughs> We wouldn't have had Pastor Josh. We wouldn't have New Song Church. Yeah. You wouldn't be sitting here tonight. Yeah. Your life, your kingdom life, and who you are is tied to the destiny of so many people. That's good. So pray in the Spirit. Believe God over them. And then just keep a kingdom purpose in your heart about everything you're doing kingdom purpose that's so good for husbands for lost siblings for mm-hmm. uh lost parents everything she said you can do that with those lost family members in your life so the second part of the question is is there ever a point where i should walk away from the marriage if he's hindering my spiritual growth well first of all i want to say anytime you are serving and giving to another human being it grows you it doesn't hinder you mm. See, it grew me wow. to it grew me to love him and 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 to uh, put him first in my life wow, at that what time. What a mindset shift! That's good. <laughs> That's good. But but let me just say this scripturally. Let's say you do have a husband and he's not serving God right now, and you're worried about that hindering you. Listen to this. It says, unless your husband is beating you, abusing you in some way. Mentally, physically, unfaithful, adultery, pornography, whatever. The Bible says you have no grounds for divorce. Even if they don't believe in Jesus. 
Let me read this to you. First Corinthians seven thirteen says, And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is content to live with her. Now that's a big word right there. If they're content to live with you, they're not being mean to you. They're not abusing you. They're not hurting you. They just don't agree with you about Jesus. Uh, she should not divorce him for the unbelieving husband has been made holy by his believing wife. And the unbelieving wife has been made holy by a believing husband by virtue of his or her sacred union to a believer. Otherwise, your children from the union would be unclean, but in fact, they are holy. But if the unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, let them go. Because that means they're not content with you. And if that happens, the word says, let it be so. Because the believing spouse is not bound to the marriage for God has called us to live in peace. And this is the, the, a scripture I didn't even put in my notes, but I was reading it. It says, but wives, for all you know, you could one day lead your husband to salvation. Yeah. Think about Esther. You were called into the kingdom for such a time as this. Good. Maybe, maybe so you were good. the one born to get him saved. Yes. I love so, it. so good. Yeah. Here's our next question. Okay. My husband has no vision for our marriage or our family. What do I do? I can't follow a man to the ends of the earth without knowing where he is leading me or our children. This is good. Okay. So when Josh and I's marriage message, I talked about how your husband wants to know uh, that you'd follow them to the ends of the earth. And this person is saying, well, that's kind of hard to do when my husband is going nowhere. He's not leading us. Okay. So how do we do this? How do we get our husbands to lead? Okay. I think on this one, you've got to give your husband space to lead mm-hmm. and you have to learn how to prompt the visionary in him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so how do you do that? This starts in everyday little things. Instead of you calling all the shots, because it's probably what you're used to doing, especially since your husband hasn't tapped into this leadership thing, right? You're used to calling all the shots. Uh, but you need to give him some space to lead. You need to ask his mm-hmm. advice, even in just little everyday things. You can start with something like, hey, I'm thinking about signing up Billy for T-Ball at the Y this summer. What do you think about that? Is that something that you want to commit our family to for six weeks and $75 or whatever? Like, make sure you you ask his advice on things. Or what do you want to do for vacation this summer? Instead of just planning the vacation and saying, show up on these days, take these days off. Like, let him know that you want his input, that you value his voice. Or I'm thinking of cutting my hair. What do you think? Do you want me to keep long hair? Do you like short hair? Instead of just showing up with bangs that he hates, right? We want to let him know that we value their feedback. So ask his opinion on things. Mm -hmm. Start to let him lead in little things, day-to-day things, and um, maybe actually even do some of the things he suggests, okay? (laughs) That gives him space to lead. A lot of times when, when men relinquish their rights and their responsibility to lead, they do it because they don't feel like their voice matters anyway. Uh, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm kind of checking out because you don't value what I think anyways. My voice isn't important to it's you true. anyways. Or maybe they tried to lead and they failed mm-hmm. and now they're a little gun shy. Mm-hmm. Men hate failing. Yes. Like they yes. hate it. So if they've tried and failed, 
then they're going to need a lot of encouragement from you to get back out there and try again. Or maybe they've, they're new. Maybe you've got a new husband or they're a new dad and they're a little afraid. Like, what if I do this? What if I go all out? What if I lead my family and I lead us to destruction? There's like some fear, this burden sure. that they carry that causes them to be a little hesitant. Right. So your goal is to give them space and tons and encouragement and affirmation along the way. And then the next thing you've got to do is you've got to ask questions that prompt the visionary in him. Okay, sometimes yes, we're not getting the right answers or, or we're not getting answers to the questions that, that, we're at, uh, that we have because we're not asking the right questions. Or maybe we're not asking our husbands questions at all. So just questions like go out on a date or on a drive or something and... Hey, yeah. where do you see our family in three years? Like, what do you think, where do you think we'll be? Like, what do you want to be doing in three years? What, what's your dream for our family? Uh, what do you think the purpose for our marriage is? Why did God mm-hmm. join us together? Mm-hmm. What's the kingdom mm-hmm. purpose for our right. marriage? Right. Uh, what would you do if money were not an issue? Like, bring up these conversations that prompt him to think visionary That's proverbs 31 11 and 12 says she comforts encourages mm. and does her husband only good and not evil all the days of her of her life so if you want to see him step into leader just focus on these things i'm going to comfort him mm-hmm. and let him know that i believe in him i trust him encourage him uh this was great i loved when you when you stepped in i loved when you offered your input mm-hmm. i love your input thank you for helping me through that situation encourage and then only good and not evil all the days of her life as much as you want to like just nag at your husband and gripe at him because he's not being the spiritual leader of your home only good how can you positively encourage him to step out and lead give him space and prompt the visionary in your husband okay next question that's so good by the way um this one is actually my favorite how can i initiate more sex without seeming slutty I know we need it, but we're busy and we're tired. Uh, I think that's my favorite question, too. (laughs) Um, Okay, I love that I know... Okay, she knows they need it. Like, Mm -hmm. she understands that sex is important. She's been going to new songs. She gets it. (laughs) Sex is a gift from God that enables us to establish this intense connection with our spouse. She knows they need it. But I think what she's getting at is she wants to want it. And she wants him to want it. So, she, so how can she get him to want it and her to want it without seeming slutty? Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, first realize that being sexual and sensual and provocative in the marriage bed is never slutty. No. Okay? The enemy would love to come and make you feel shame and guilt for doing things that are going to spice up the bedroom, right? You wear that outfit and he wants to make you feel like you're being slutty or you buy that toy or that, that try that position or the swing, whatever, whatever floats your boat, whatever you're interested in. Swing. I know some y'all have swings. Not, yeah, right there. I wasn't going to point any fingers, but you offered it up. 
The enemy would love to make you feel dirty and, and for doing things like that. But here's the thing, guys. God did not just create sex for being fruitful and multiplying. No. He also created it for our pleasure. He wants you to have fun. He wants you to want it. And he wants your spouse to want it. And so feel free to spice things up. In fact, the only things that we're told to avoid when it comes to sexual activities are these. Fornication, which is sex while single, dating, or engaged. Which answers the question we got about what does the Bible say about living with your boyfriend prior to marriage. If you're living together, you're probably sleeping together. That's fornication. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 says that's a sin. We're also told to avoid adultery. Sex with someone other than your spouse. Homosexuality, prostitution, incest, and pornography. Those are the things that are off limits according to scripture. While we're here, let's knock out a few other questions relating to this. Here's another question we got. Why is it sinful for married couples to watch pornography together? Okay, so there are some misconceptions about this. Like, I know it's wrong for my husband to watch pornography without me and for me to watch it without him, but is it wrong if we're watching it together? Okay, it is wrong. And here's why. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So your husband is supposed to love you the same way that Christ loves and takes pleasure in the body of Christ in the church. Okay, it's inconceivable for us to think that in order for Jesus to get, um, to, to express his love and pleasure toward us, to get excited about loving us, that he would have to feast on some sinful images to get, to get uh, stimulated or awakened, to, for that to awaken his love for the church, okay? Now, the reason that spouses, couples are watching pornography together is for that very reason. They, they are needing to stimulate, awaken, um, and, and do something to um, get themselves to the place where they're ready to have sex with each other. But here's the thing. Um, there's only one that's meant to arouse your spouse sexually, and that's you. And there's only one that's meant to arouse you sexually, and that's your, your spouse. I think John Piper sums this up beautifully. I mean, couldn't say it better. Right. Watching porn with your spouse is a sin, a revolting sin. It's revolting because it blasphemes Christ as if he needed sin to help him love his bride. Your husband should not need sin to help him love you. Don't take that. Because it celebrates the sickness and sin of the pornography industry. Yeah, let's not celebrate that. And because it insults the preciousness of your heart and your body by the one above all others, your husband, who should cherish and nourish your soul. So that's why pornography, even as a couple, is wrong. So fornication, adultery, homosexuality, prostitution, prostitution, incest, and porn. But anything else within the perimeters of your marriage bed knock yourself out girl have fun explore each other uh find out what you like what you don't like a great way uh, or a great safe website for you to find some things there's no nudity there's no porn on this it's a site created for christian couples it's called thepurebed.com write it down write it down it's okay it's okay write it down um there's there's some fun things on there that you can use together. Again, it's all stuff designed to be used together. Uh, there's some ebooks that you should check out. I've heard some great things about those. Um, so thepurebed.com, okay? <laughs> hey, we'll just keep that up there a little longer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, here's another question that was submitted. My husband wants me to homeschool our children, but I want them to go to school. We cannot find common ground. Do I have to homeschool since he's the head of the house? Woo! Well, first of all, marriage is about collaboration, not domination. Preach. When God created us, he made us both dominion leaders, okay? Men are dominion leader by authority. Women are dominion leaders by influence, okay? Marriage is not about who gets their way. Marriage is about blending strategies, wisdom, and seeking God as to what is best for the family and coming up with a plan together with the help of the third party of the, whole, of the marriage, which is the Holy Spirit, And the scripture says that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. A lot of people say the Holy Spirit will lead you, but it actually says he'll lead you into truth. And God knows the truth about your situation. Yeah. And he will help you come up with what's best for your family and a plan. Yeah, that's good. I will say this is one of those decisions that both parents need to be on the same Mm -hmm. page Mm -hmm. uh, about. So keep having conversations until you get there. Or you're going to put a big strain on your family. Mm-hmm. Your kids are going mm-hmm. to feel it. So make sure you get on the same page about this. Um, when you find yourself in a stalemate, though, and you can't, like we've had all the conversations. We've prayed and we're mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. not uh, agreeing on this. Go see a counselor. Sure. Okay. Set up a, a meeting with one of our pastors here at New Song. Go see a professional counselor. Your marriage doesn't have to be like falling apart on the fringe for you to go and seek some wisdom and counsel on just one issue. Like, hey, everything else is great, but this, can you mm-hmm. help us process this? I mean, mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. hour with this counselor could change everything for mm-hmm. you. So uh, care at newsongpeople.com. If you need marriage counseling, if you need some help, that's a great resource. Email us and we'll send you some paperwork and get you processed and let you know what you need to do next. So, so good. Okay, here's another question we received. Ever since Pastor Josh's message on friendship, I've been trying to identify my three closest friends, my Peter, James, and John. How can I discern my people and should I tell them that they are my people? (laughs) Well, when I was... uh praying over these questions, uh, as I thought about it, the Lord gave me this statement. Get ready. Get ready. He says, friendships are meant to be about kingdom business, not social busyness. Boom. So good. (laughs) Say it again. Friendships are meant to be about kingdom business, not social busyness. Love it. There are a whole lot of people I would love to hang out with. You know, just... You have fun with them. You have a good time with them. But I've only had a few friends in my lifetime that were very, very close to me. I can't probably even put them on one hand. Two, uh, one of them's right here. One of them's my daughter. And one of them's a lady that lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, one of the things that you've got to do when you're deciding on a friend is you've got to ask yourself if you are called to build with someone bef- before you can make a long-term commitment to them, her. And, and what's your criteria for choosing those close friends? It's obvious you want friends because you, you, you like to get out and do things. But I want to give you five things that as I was studying this, I thought the best pr- place to go is to see how Jesus chose his friends. Yeah. So I'm going to give you five things quickly. Whoops. Did I lose my sound? No, no? you're good. Okay. Number one. Jesus prayed his friends in. 
the night before he chose the disciples. It says he prayed all night before he chose the 12. This shows he had a choice for friends, and it was not haphazard what he chose. Number two, uh, his friends lived lives of obedience to God. We don't have any business being friends with people that are opposite of us. And when I say opposite, I mean we are, in the, we are in the kingdom of light and there are people in the kingdom of darkness. You can love them, you can minister to them, but you cannot be friends. Dark and light cannot mix. Yeah. Yeah. We're called to light. Uh, number three, Jesus chose friends he could share his heart with. I love this one too. In Matthew thirteen eleven, Jesus told his friends, to you, it has been given to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but not to non-friends. Hmm. So he was very ch- chosen and even what he shared his heart with yeah. because of their belief. See, it has not, if someone cannot understand your heart or believe in your vision, it will be difficult for them to be a kingdom friend to you because they're going to hinder so you. Good. Yes. Number four, Jesus' friends received his hard sayings. In John 6, 66 through 68, he began to get more personal about what his mission was in life. He said, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die. And it wasn't getting fun for people anymore. Yeah. It's like, oh, this requires sacrifice. This requires discipline. This requires separating myself from certain people. I don't know if I like that. So then it says, many of the disciples left. Your true friends will stand by you even when God gives you a hard saying and or call to do something that is not understood by many other people. It's good. It's all about your heart. It's about sacrifice. It's about kingdom. Once again, we go back to kingdom purposes. And then numbers five, Jesus' friends were those who stood by him during his trials. God will often allow you to go through severe personal or ministerial trials to test those around you to demonstrate who your real friends are. You can only build with those who are faithful to you during difficult times and not only when things are going well. That is good. That is how you find those three people. You're Peter, James, and John. Okay, then it says, should I tell them they are my people? Uh, Yes, this is so interesting. Uh, Research shows that only half of friendships are reciprocal. Only half, okay? (laughs) The other shocking thing is that research also confirms we assume all of our friendships are reciprocal. (laughs) And this is where people get hurt and where they get their heart broken and you're Mm -hmm. not a good friend to me and I expect this out of you. I didn't even know that you thought I was that close to you. Like, you, you... you need to let them know these are you are my people. This also gives you a chance to let them know, hey, whenever question, when times get tough or uh, whenever I, you see things in me that need to be called out, I'm giving you permission to call me out, ask me tough questions, uh, pray for me, encourage me. So yes, absolutely, tell them they are that you want them to be that Peter, James, and John type of friend in mm-hmm. your life. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's great. Okay, so we've talked about marriage. We've talked a little bit about sex. Yes. This is a question kind of about parenting. Okay. How do I know when it's time to talk to my children about sex? Ooh, yes. Okay. The talk. Um, okay. Really, it's when your kids begin to ask more questions. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, when our kids were little, like three and four, where do babies come from? They come from God. All, all good and perfect things come from above, right? But as they get older, then they start to ask more and more questions. And you know that that answer will no longer suffice. So uh, Bo came in the other day. She's our eight-year-old daughter. And she's like, hey, somebody at school told me that babies come out of your butt. <laughs> I was like, no. And if you know Bo, that's exactly how she said it. I was like, no, they don't come out of your butt. Um, where do, where do they come out of? And I was like, well, let's talk about this later. Um, and then she began to ask like, what are those little like napkin thingies that you buy at the store and they're in your purse sometimes? And I was like, okay, it's time for the girl talk, right? Um, so I let her know, Hey, we're going to have a really special girl talk. Just me and you. I let her know what was coming. We planned a lot of fun things around it. Um, she went to go get her hair cut and then we went to Target and she did some shopping. We got a happy meal at McDonald's and then we ended up in the Target parking lot for our girl talk. You don't want to do this in a restaurant, especially with Bo. Um, <laughs> and so we're in the privacy of our car, just me and her. And I was kind of dreading this moment. Like I didn't feel prepared. I, Josh had done it with our son Gus when he was also eight years old. Um, but for some reason I was just kind of psyching myself out about it. But I'm telling you, it was by far it's got to be one of my top five moments of all time as a parent yeah. with her. This little girl, these big green eyes looking back at me like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens. And she's laughing and she's giggling and we are bonding. Like there's such a bond that mm -hmm. took place in that car that night. Um, she was for sure ready. So I knew that like, eight years old, as young as that seems, she was ready for that conversation. And so was Gus at eight. It, maybe your kids aren't asking questions. I would say before they enter the fourth grade, you need to have that conversation with them, even if they, yes, but, but let them know what's coming. Don't like catch them off guard. <laughs> and they're like, oh my gosh, stop talking. Like make it, make it fun, make it exciting. Um, I, I love that, that that night she learned that this is not a taboo topic at our house. Right. It's not something that you can't ask me about. Of course, you're not going to all talk about it at the dinner table together. But if you have questions, you come to me and I will answer those questions yes, yes. for you. Um, and also realize that as your kids get older, you're going to need to revisit this conversation again and again and mm -hmm. again. Because in that first talk, we did not cover pornography. We did not cover masturbation or oral sex or second base or purity. None <laughs> of that got brought up, which shows you. That one talk is not enough. That's just the foundation. So you need to revisit this. I think what's interesting is like tonight, 80% of the questions that we got were about sex, which lets me know mm -hmm. that we were failing as parents to answer questions right. for us kids. We're failing as a church right. to talk about these things. Moms, I know it may be totally out of your comfort zone, but talk to your daughters yes. about sex and make sure that your husbands are talking to your sons about God's plan for sex. Uh, if you need a resource, if you may be like, I don't know how to do this. The Talk by Luca Gilkerson. It's seven lessons to in, uh, introduce your child to biblical sexuality. It's a great resource for you. There's like pictures of the sperm and the egg, or you could just wing it like me with my <laughs> iPhone. Sperm. That's what it looks like right there. Egg. That's what it looks like right there. Um, but she got it, right? So, but if you need a resource, if you really want to go into this prepared, that's a great, a great resource for you. 
All right, another parenting question. How do I teach my kids about homosexuality? I want my kids to be able to not believe in the homosexual lifestyle, but be able to love anyone that's gay. Well, you know, if you raise your kids by the Bible, they're going to love people. Yeah. They're gonna right. love, you teach them to love people, all right. people, even people when they're not doing things according to God's word. That's good. You, you, if, you, if you raise them right, they'll learn to love. Yeah. But the question of homosexuality... Uh, you don't want your kids to not believe in the homosexual lifestyle. It's not like Santa. It's not like the Easter Bunny. We don't believe in this. It exists. It does exist. It's out there. It's out there. And it's being really, you know, bombarded in our society at this time. But the, the Bible is very clear on homosexuality. And we've got to be able to teach our children how to love these people while at the same time, it's not truth. Yeah. It's not truth. And so you need to be able to sit them down and talk to them about why. You need to show them the scriptures. Why homosexuality is not right. Uh, it, it's, it's just not in God's design. It's not in his purpose. And our, we can't hide it from them. We just yeah. can't pretend like it's not there. Yeah, it's not our job to avoid it's, it and like just no. don't like look, don't like yeah, you many of you have loved ones that are yes. in these relationships. Yes. And so they're gonna come into contact with it. It's our job to just make sure that they know why it's wrong right. and that right. the great supreme commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And right. that means that we're gonna love these people and we're not gonna isolate them, we're not gonna push them away. But they do know that this is what God's word says right. about this issue. And I'll say this, uh, about oh, a year ago or so, uh, our pastor, my son, preached an amazing message that was so full of truth and grace on this subject. Yeah. And if you want more on it in a more uh, uh, in-depth in yeah. way, then I would suggest that you go to the archives and you look that up. And it's at newsongpeople.com. Slash series. Slash series. And you can find what he taught on homosexuality. And yeah. it was a very, very good series yes. we'd listen to. It was in the You Asked For It series. Yes, yes. Okay, that, that's so, so good. Here's the next question that we got. My husband came clear about a porn addiction three years ago. Since then, I have forgiven him for it. He completely quit, and I trust that he quit. But how can I stop comparing myself to other women or being self-conscious about who I am and what I look like? Um, first of all, I'm so sorry. I hate pornography so much. I hate it. And I, um, along with every woman in the room who's gone through this, we can 100% relate. Um, I remember 14 years, Josh, Josh and I have been married 16 years in June. But about 14 years ago, I found out he had a pornography addiction. And after I found that out, my sensitivity to attractive women was heightened by a million percent. Sure. Like I noticed every uh, nice butt. I noticed all the boobs. I noticed the short shorts and uh, the great bodies. I mean, it, it was everywhere. Like I couldn't, I couldn't escape it. And when I'm with him, I'm noticing, I'm like wondering, is he noticing what I'm noticing? And I'm like following his eyes to make sure that he's not looking at these lustful images. I mean, they're everywhere. Now, the day before I found out about this addiction, all the same butts and boobs and, and hoochie mamas running around out there. 
they were all there and I didn't notice them. They didn't bother me. But now I knew this about him and that he struggled with this and it was torture. Um, Like I literally sometimes felt like I was losing my mind. Like I could see it everywhere, at the store, at the mall, on TV. Lustful images are everywhere. And I wondered like, will this ever end? I was 20 at the time, no kids, great body. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like if I'm not enough now, mm-hmm. then what when I'm 34 and I've had three kids, what, what about when I'm 50? So I was like tormented by my present and absolutely scared to death of what the future mm-hmm. held. Um, this went on for a long time. I had forgiven him like you. I felt like we're making great strides in our marriage, but I, I kept going back to this comparison and seeing these girls and, and trying to convince, like, if I could just get hot enough that this wouldn't happen. And um, then something devastating happened. I thought, like, okay, once this is out and we've prayed and we've forgiven, like, we'll never have to deal with this again. But I was wrong. And he had another a, a, a failure. He slipped up. And I got a report on my computer from his monitoring software. And when I got that report, I saw that he'd been looking at pornographic images. Now, I don't know why, but I think maybe because I wanted to see what was so appealing about this stuff that he would choose to go down this path again. So I clicked on everything. I wanted to see it all. And so I clicked on image after image after image. And as I watched in real time, like these go from image to image, from girl to girl to girl. I sat there like my blood was boiling. My heart was breaking. Tears were flowing. And yet revelation revelation was coming yes and the holy spirit whispered to me like don't you see this like look this is not about you and this is not even about them this is not like him trying to find some ultimate attractive woman right Right. none of these girls are enough and guess what you're not enough either and at first I was kind of taken aback, like, wait, what? Like, I'm supposed to complete him, right? Like, you complete me, Jerry Maguire, mm-hmm. like everything. But it, that's, that's not, the, that's not the, the, the plan that God has for right. our lives. The only thing that's meant to complete us is him. So I realized that this addiction literally had nothing to do with me and how I looked. And yes. it had everything to do with idolatry. My husband mm-hmm. had turned pornography into a little G God. He right. was looking to pornography as a source of fulfillment. And because it's such a shallow thing and the fulfillment only lasts for a second, then he would go back to it, continue to go back to get that fulfillment. So I, I kind of realized like, if I could transform my body to look just like this girl, I still wouldn't be enough. And so I I started thinking differently. My focus began to shift. Instead of thinking about my beauty and my image and all the other girls out there, I started thinking, okay, in order for my husband to see the ugliness of pornography, I need him to see the beauty of Christ. Right. It wasn't about my beauty anymore. I need him to see the beauty of Christ's love for him. If he can see Christ's love for him through me, then he'll see the ugliness of pornography. And that's when things shifted. That's when that torment ended for me. Um, Now, I'd be lying if I said that when I go to Target and I see the girl with the great cleavage and the short shorts and I'm still not a little bit uncomfortable. But in that moment, I choose not to study, not to stare, not to compare because I've learned that that does no good. I choose to cast down every imagination and high thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And I remember that my value and my worth do not come from what I look like. 
First Peter three, three through four says your adornment must not be merely external with interweaving and elaborate nodding of the hair and wearing gold jewelry or being superficially preoccupied. So he was looking to pornography as an idol, but I started looking to my image as an idol. I was superficially preoccupied with how I looked, dressing in expensive clothes, but let it be the inner beauty of, the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality and unfading charm of a gentle and peaceful spirit. Listen to this. One that is calm and self-controlled and not over-anxious but serene and spiritually mature, which is precious in the sight of God. Yes. Now, I'm not saying that makeup and braiding are, are, are not okay. What I'm saying is that we as women cannot be superficially preoccupied with how we look. Um, this renewed way of thinking, it doesn't happen overnight, especially when there's been a betrayal in marriage. But I'm telling you, if you will make it your goal, not to, not to focus on what you look like or the women around you look like, but make it your goal for your husband to see the beauty of Christ's love for him. That's what will help him to see the ugliness of the sin of pornography. Amen. Amen. so good. Here's the next question we received. Where can women seek help for sexual sin? It's mainly talked about in church as a man's problem, but many women struggle. Yes. Okay. We got to book through these next ones. All right. Okay. I used to think that porn and lust were just a main, uh, a manly issue, but that's absolutely not true. Okay. One in five women use the internet for sexual purposes habitually every week. One in five women every week. I want you to hear me this morning or this evening. If you struggle with sexual sin, you're not a pervert. You're not dirty. You are not broken. You are in bondage to sin, but here's the good news. You are a perfect candidate for the freedom that Christ has set you free to walk in. Uh, so where can you seek help as a woman? One, you're his small group. Uh, where, I'm going to just put this out there, it's a no stone throwing aloud group. It's come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Remember when Jesus caught the woman in adultery, he drew the line in the sand and he said, uh, let the, the person who hasn't sinned throw the first stone. Listen, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Just because you've never looked at pornography or never struggled with sexual sin doesn't mean that you get to throw a stone at your sister who has a sin that you don't understand. So there are no stone throwing aloud in our His Small Group. So tell your His Small Group, there's online Christian support groups, counseling with a pastor here at New Song, Christian professional counseling. You need to tell somebody, mm-hmm. don't fight this alone. Get it out in the dark, but here's the most important thing. You need to understand that your sin hurts the heart of your father. A lot of times when we're dealing with sin, especially sexual sin, I feel like people try to tackle it with faith alone. Like, I'm just going to faith it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's great, but before you get there, you need to experience something called godly sorrow. And that's what's wrong with the world is nobody's experiencing godly sorrow for their sin. Our hearts aren't breaking for what's breaking God's heart. That's That's what leads us away from sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin. Okay, there's a big difference from being sorry for your sin and having godly sorrow for your sin. And here's the difference. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. repentance. 
And repentance is what you want. Repentance is change in your thinking and it's change, it's a change in your action. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. If you want your thinking and your actions to change, you've got to be broken before God for your sin. And then here's what happens. When you do that, godly sorrow produces repentance, okay? And here's, here's what happens next. This is so beautiful, guys. You're more alive after this. You're more concerned. You're more sensitive. You're more reverent. You're more human. You're more passionate. You're more responsible. Looked at from any angle, you've come out of this with purity of heart. Yes. That's what's available to those of you struggling with sin of any kind when you allow yourself to feel the sorrow that God wants you to feel for your sin. This question's an interesting one. Is masturbating wrong oh we go in there wow um i'm just gonna read a lot (laughs) i was like nana you want to talk about masturbation thank you uh she's got some really amazing things i want her to share so i'm going to go through my notes on this really quickly and i just want you to listen to our heart on this uh the first thing you got to do is consider god's design for sex god designed sex to be exclusive with another person of the opposite sex to whom you are married. Uh, God designed sex to be profound, which masturbation is not. It is shallow. God made sex to be selflessly, God-centered, not self-centered, and self-satisfying. Masturbation refers directly to the practice by which a person brings himself or herself to orgasm without anyone else involved. It's all about you. Yeah. Really? What it is, is a non-relational same-sex arousal and same-sex fulfillment. Even, yeah. Even if you're thinking of a male while you're doing this, you're still arousing yourself. It is outside the biblical pattern and something to be avoided if you want to be living in God's will and obtaining, abstaining from sexual immorality. Masturbation often brings with it shame, and that's because God has a better way. It's good. If you're single, it's totally natural for you to crave sexual fulfillment. Don't be discouraged and don't think it's okay for you to masturbate every day you aren't, er, er, because you aren't married. Yet instead, allow God to use your sexual desires to teach you what it means to depend upon his strength and his love every day. Good stuff. Amen. Okay, this next question. Is this lumps... helping anybody? Yeah. Okay. Okay, this next question lumps a bunch together. Mm-hmm. Says, we got it, two more. We got two more. Two more. Is it wrong to have a glass of wine? How can I overcome my addiction to food? And is it permissible for a Christian to use pot for recreational purposes? Okay. Or go in there too. Okay, we're going to lump all of these right and wrong behavior questions into one category with one answer, which is really made up of two questions. Write these questions down. Why? <laughs> question mark. And really? Question mark. Okay. When you're wondering if a behavior is okay with God, uh, Mm. these are two really important questions to ask. Jess Connolly in her book, Dance, Stand, Run, she has a whole chapter on this very thing, holy and unholy habits. And the the chapter's called Why and Really. Chapter four, get it? If you just read that chapter, it's worth it. Okay, so the first question you need to ask to navigate holy and unholy habits is why? Why? Why do you drink? Why do you overeat? Why do you smoke pot, have a cigarette, glass of wine, binge watch Gilmore Girls, listen to secular music, okay? Here are some possible answers. Why? It helps when you relax. 
It, signal, it signals my brain that we're in the fun zone. Uh, I deserve a treat. That's why it's easier for me to open up my spouse. Uh, after a long day, uh, the troubles of my day float away a little quicker. Everyone needs to hit pause on the stress of the week, especially people in my position. Okay, those might be your wives. If those are your wives, then what you have there is a little G God. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is you're looking to that for relief and for escape from reality. Okay, so somewhere along the line, you've forgotten the power of Christ that's within right. you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's available and in you. And the one who began a good work in you has promised to bring it to completion. So Jess, in the book, she talks about how she used to look forward to this once a week glass of wine. So much so, she was so looking forward to that glass of wine once a week that she, in her own words, says, it limited my ability to anticipate God showing up in yes. my week. Uh, she wasn't getting drunk, but she was counting on that glass of wine to bring her rest, relaxation, rejuvenation, and joy. And she felt like the easiest way for her to relax was to numb herself. Um, so then she started asking, really? I'm like, okay, I don't like those whys, so now I'm going to say, really? Do you really not believe the Lord wants to help you find peace in the middle of the week? Do you really think peace and rest come from two hours of not feeling things because you've had a strong drink or you've binged ate or binge watch TV. Uh, do you really not know that God has a plan for you to live in abundance that's so much greater than anything you can find at a restaurant or bar or see on social media or whatever? It may not be wine or alcohol or pot or cigarettes for you, Netflix, Instagram, whatever, but whatever it is. Uh, does it mean that these things are evil? Absolutely not. But what it does means is that we can't depend on these things as crutches mm -hmm. uh, to find our rest and to refine or to find our comfort. But when we begin to ask why and really, we mm -hmm. discover uh, that the only one who is enough, yeah. truly enough, truly sustaining is God. He's enough for us right. on our rough days. He's enough yes. when things aren't going our way. He's enough of a treat for us. When yes. things are going our way. So whatever numbing devices you have, and we all have them. Yes. Whatever numbing devices you have, you need to keep watch over your heart concerning those things. Mm -hmm. um, ask why and really often. And you'll get the answer, I think, on whether or not you're honoring God with your choices. Let's go right to the next one. So this is the last question. I think it's really, really important. Yeah. This is, is, this is a good one. Yeah. Is depression a demon? Is depression a demon? Okay. There are three major things that drive depression, and I want to talk about them real quickly. Yeah. So if you're dealing with this or someone you know is dealing with this, you can get them answers and begin to move forward. Okay, the, one of the things that drives depression is spiritual-driven yeah. depression. Okay, yeah. depression and anxiety are not always demonic, but yeah. sometimes that's exactly what they are. Okay, mm -hmm. I want you to know, though, as a Christian, you can never be demon-possessed. Christ's spirit is alive in you, so you can't be demon-possessed, but you can be demonically oppressed. Okay, here's yes. the difference. Possessed, demon in you. Oppressed, demon on you. The devil loves to come and sit on us and crush us and speak lies to us. That's oppression. I remember <laughs> when I had Gus, uh, I brought him home. I was so excited in the hospital, but within hours of being home, I got hit with demonic oppression. Mm -hmm. They had been talking about postpartum depression and shaking baby syndrome and all this stuff. 
And I just had this oppression come, like, you're going to hurt your baby. You're going to be one of those women on TV that does something psychotic, like drown your kid. And I'm like, I can't break away from it. It's so heavy. It's stealing my joy. It's stealing my peace. I cannot enjoy this gift that I've been anticipating for yes. months and months and months. So I called my mom and I said, I'm having these thoughts. Like, I just saw a vision of me putting Gus on the lawn and a lawnmower running over him. Like, mom, what is wrong with me. It was demonic oppression. She began to tell me the truth. You are a good mom. You would never hurt your baby. You have a sound mind. So she began to speak the truth over me. And then I began to worship God. And I sent that demonic oppression packing. There is a way out of oppression. James 4, 7. Let God work his will in you. Yell a loud no to the devil and watch him scamper. If you recognize, you feel that oppression, take a stand. Yes. Um, there is Absolutely. a way out of spiritual depression, but there, yes. is, there is such a thing as demonic oppression that leads to depression. Um, I want to recommend 21daybraindetox.com uh, by Caroline Leaf. It's a great resource for you if you're dealing with uh, spiritual depression. Okay, next is circumstantial depression. This is depression driven by life events like a miscarriage, a divorce, a, a long-term illness. Things that just aren't working out and you find yourself yes. in, in a slump, in a circumstantial depression. Elijah suffered from this in scripture. He yes. had this great victory and then uh, he yes. was getting death threats from the queen and he felt like he had failed. And so he's in the wilderness wishing and praying that he would not have been born. Right. How did God get him out of this? Write this down. First Kings 19. If you're dealing with circumstantial depression, look at how Elijah got out of it. Rest and diet. Yes. The first thing God saw about was his rest and his diet. Take a nap, yes. eat, sleep, eat, sleep, eat. Charles Spurgeon says, uh, do not forget these matters. It may seem to some people that I ought not mention such small things as food and rest, but these may be the very first elements in really helping a poor, depressed servant of God. Yes. The next thing we see is he had a personal encounter with God. He went out on the mountain. God told him to go on the mountain and he positioned himself to have a moment with God. And he thought he was going to see God in the wind, hear him in, in the earthquake. Uh, but that's not how he, he encountered God. He heard him in a still, small voice. So you need to position yourself to hear from God when yes. you're going through circumstantial yes. depression. He yes. may not show up in the way that you think he will, but if you position yourself, he will show up. And one word from him in a still, small voice can heal your emotions yes. instantly. Yes. yes. Instantly. Yes. And then the next thing we see is he got an assignment from God. When you're going mm-hmm. through circumstantial depression, look for God to give you an assignment. He'll get your focus. He'll take your focus and put it on something else. Yes. When I had a baby at 20 weeks stillborn, God gave me the greatest yes, assignment of my life. Yes, he did. Find 10,000 reasons to be thankful. Turn it into a blog. It helped so many people. Built such a foundation in me. He yes. gave me an assignment, and I never had to deal with depression through any of that. Okay, third, the third thing is biochemical-driven depression. This is not demonic. This is not circumstantial-driven. This is when the brain is actually not operating at optimal health. Okay, I have something mind-blowing to tell you tonight. Uh, The brain is an organ. I don't know if you knew that or not, but the brain is an organ. And this is one that the church typically gets wrong, the biochemical. We frown on medication. We convince people that they just need to pray harder. You just need to get in the Word. You just need to worship. Okay, but if your kidney is sick, another organ, we don't just tell you to pray harder. We tell you pray, we're going to believe for healing, but also take this medication. When people are dealing with biochemical depression and our answer is pray harder, that's not fair. 
It's not fair to that person, and it creates isolation. Okay, um, we believe that God is a healer at New Song. You know us. You know the heart of this house. And we believe that Jesus took stripes on his back and that he wants you well. He wants you body and soul bursting with health. But we also want you to know that if you're dealing with biochemical depression, like you've been to the doctor, they've done blood work, they've done scans, they say you have something, your brain is sick. We want you to know, talk to them about the side effects of the medication and then prayerfully, prayerfully take that medication. Believe for healing, but take the medication until the healing arrives. You may need that medication just to get some clarity so that you can begin to, just to get sleep, just to get clarity so you can start moving in the right direction. If you're here today and you're dealing with any kind of depression, I want you to know that God is here. He wants to heal you. He wants to set you free. He He wants to give you answers. In fact, I'm going to invite everybody to stand on their feet. Then I'm going to invite our altar ministry team down tonight. And I know we're we're late here. Um, But I also don't want you to check out. Amen. Because I believe this, what's about to happen up here, is going to be a really powerful moment of altar ministry. All... All week, the last couple weeks, I know God wants to heal depression, whether it's you're being oppressed, he wants to set you free, whether it's uh, circumstantial, whether it's biochemical, he wants to heal wounds that your spouse has caused, Uh, he wants to, to just... Bring your bring you to a new level of freedom. Yes. Whatever you're going through tonight, whatever yes, whatever yes. things that cause you to ask questions, uh, he wants to minister to your heart tonight. This isn't about just information. This is about ministry. He wants to minister to you. So yes. we're going to go back into one more song, and I am going to uh, ask you, if you have a prayer need of any kind, yes. come forward and expect to encounter God. Set yourself up like Amen. Elijah for a personal encounter with God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw every person within the sound of my voice that you want to directly minister tonight through prayer, through altar ministry. I pray that you would draw them to the altars. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name, amen.